You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Police brutality and white vigilantism is nothing new. We all know the story of Emmett Till, a horrific display of white violence against a black body that took place in the 1950s. Do you have any evidence bearing on this case? I do know that this is my son. How long do you expect to be here? Until the trial is over. Bryant and his half-brother, J.W. Milam, were acquitted by this jury. We've all heard the countless names of victims since then. Brianna Taylor. Trayvon Martin. Tamir Rice. George Floyd. The violence itself has held some consistency over the years. What has really shifted and evolved is how this kind of violence gets documented. No one will forget the eight minutes and 46 seconds that George Floyd was pinned down to the street because we were all able to watch it. Minnesota plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, defendant. Unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. With a smartphone in all of our pockets, anyone can be a reporter or a filmmaker. So when acts of violence are enacted on black people, there's a good chance that the public will capture it. Police shot this boy outside my apartment. Having brutality documented in video format does push protesters out to the streets and inform the populace of prevalent issues. But even with video evidence, accountability is not guaranteed. grand jury decision, no indictment for a New York City police officer in the death of Eric Garner from a chokehold. Protests all over the country. Welcome to a new episode of Tech Tank, where we take complicated issues and we transform them from bytes to bits, particularly in the area of technology policy. And today's conversation is one that is near and dear to my heart, particularly as we are upon the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. He was a gentle giant from the Minneapolis area who for eight minutes and 46 seconds, and if you watch the case and the trial, you saw it was actually nine minutes. This young man was murdered by a cop who later was convicted for that egregious activity. But what's so interesting about the conversation that we're going to have today, in addition to the country, not necessarily at this point when you listen to this, having police reform legislation passed, There was a young teenager, Darnella Fraser, who had the courage as she walked to the store with her nine-year-old cousin to take out her cell phone or her mobile device and record what she saw. And I share that because we've had incidences where we have seen African-Americans, men and women, subjected to this type of police behavior but we've not seen it played out so live as it was in these last few months, especially as the country battled through a pandemic where most of us have been whole. And so 
as a person at CTI who looks at these issues and intersects my work with technology and social justice, the conversation that we're going to have today is, in the midst of the delivery of justice for George Floyd, something else happened when it came to citizen surveillance and the use of technology to help us get closer to the truth of those nine minutes. And I'm happy to be joined by three people who are colleagues, as well as one who is a new friend that will discuss this issue. Makeda Henry Nicky is a fellow in governance studies here at the Brookings Institution. Rashawn Ray is a David Rubenstein fellow, also the executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science at the University of Maryland in College Park. And Keisha Middlemaths is the Department of Political Science professor at Howard University. And so I'm happy to be joined by these three experts because let's dig into this whole use of technology in the midst of what some would argue was the biggest transparent moment, sort of like our Rodney King moment, right, in, in, in 2021 of actually seeing the types of egregious behaviors of rogue officers when it comes to the handling of civilians like George Floyd. Rashawn, let me start with you. How you doing? Hey, I'm good, Nicole. It's great to be with you and Makeda and Keisha. I look forward to this important conversation. You and I have talked. We've been on podcasts together. We've had events together. You've been tracking generally the use of surveillance tools on the part of law enforcement, and you've written extensively about these issues. And on this anniversary of George Floyd's death, which, by the way, still doesn't have police reform, so I'm hoping we'll talk a little bit about this later. What was different this time? when it came to the use of technology? Well, I think what was different is that we had an entire incident for the most part, a series of minutes, unlike very quick incidents that are oftentimes a split second that people perceive to be about a person's judgment or their their perception, their feeling about something. It was very clear that that was not the case here. And of course, we we know even in recent history, that racism isn't getting worse, it's getting filmed. That's something that, that Will Smith said, and I think that it's a profound statement. We know back from Rodney King, what that incident being filmed meant. We then know that created dash cameras that were in cars. Well, that clearly wasn't enough. And so then we ended up having body-worn cameras. And some of the research that I've done with some of my colleagues at the University of Maryland, we interviewed hundreds of police officers, hundreds of residents, of, of, a large, of a large county. And what we found is that overwhelmingly, police officers and civilians wanted body-worn cameras. So when it came down to a policy standpoint, it was bipartisan support. It was one of those things where policymakers were like, wow, we have a panacea of people having a similar reaction to things. But the reasoning as to why people wanted body-worn cameras were different. On one hand, civilians wanted body-worn cameras because they said, Police officers do things to people every single day, and we want to be able to capture it. On the other hand, we had what we called police supporters, people who would say civilians do things to police officers every single day, and we want to be able to record it. But then we also had a group that we call structural skeptics. These were people who were saying, look, even, even with being able to record this information, even being able to highlight it, it doesn't change the systemic ways that racism plays out. And obviously we've seen that where, yes, Derek Chauvin was held accountable as an individual, but the over-individualization of our court system has oftentimes let 
the system, or as I like to call it, the rotten tree of law enforcement off the hook. And smartphones are a way that people can circumvent these traditional ways that truth is displayed. That what we saw in that video, and even looking at the body-worn camera footage, even looking at the streets camera, those were limited views of what was actually going on. And instead, what that teenager did recording that information and then having the courage to get on the stand and face the man who she saw murder someone in broad daylight in front of her eyes and her little cousin's eyes. I think that is the power of individuals being able to showcase not only truth, but also the marginalization that people of color experience every single day. Yeah, I think what you're saying is so true. And I think we often forget about the trauma, right, of of the young lady, Darnella, who actually filmed this. I was reading yesterday that she put out a statement one year later, and I'm reading her exact words. She said, you know, it's a little easier now, but I'm not who I used to be. And she said, Mr. Floyd, he didn't live. We didn't say my video did not save George Floyd's life, but it actually was part of putting his murderer you know, away and off the streets. That's traumatic, right? And I agree with you. It, it, it really changed the nature of the game to actually see just how close to home this could hit for uh, young people in our community. Keisha, I, I want to bring you in this conversation, right? When we think about your extensive research background in criminal justice, policing, equity, have we ever seen such a profound impact of citizen surveillance in support of a conviction, especially for a police officer? Oh. I can think of two instances, unfortunately, where Black men have been killed and the use of video technology on the good good side of this technology actually was used to convict the police officer. So I'm thinking about Laquan McDonald in Chicago in 2014. And the original accounting of the police was that, you know, he was being aggressive. And then once the video came out after a court order, the video evidence contradicted the police narrative. And the officer, Van Dyke, was found guilty of second-degree murder. And then 16 counts of aggravated battery with a firearm related to the 17 shots he fired into the body of Laquan McDonald. There's lots of controversy around the releasing of the tapes, around elections, the, the November 24th election. 2014 election, excuse me. But the idea is the video contradicted the lies told by the police. And that led to Van Dyke's conviction. The second instance was in South Carolina. If we remember the killing and murder of Walter Scott, that he was pulled over for a broken taillight. And the officer at the time, Slager, shot Scott in the back as he was running away. And Slager lied about his actions. His lies may have actually been believed, except for the video of a bystander that literally showed Slager's disregard for Scott's life, shooting him in the back, moving a a like moving evidence, but also just not giving any medical attention to Walter Scott as he died. And so in these two instances, and now with the Chauvin trial, three instances, video technology is changing what the what we see, but also then police being arrested and convicted. 
And I think these three instances show us that the police lie. They, can, they can't be trusted and that their default is to lie until video evidence contradicts them, which we're now seeing play out in Louisiana and Ronald Green and the murder of Ronald Green. Oh, my goodness. I've watched that footage the other night on television, and it's almost as if as a person in communications policy, it took a long time for television to show the riots right in the South. And I almost feel like I'm reliving that history when I continuously see this footage. And as uh, Rayshawn talked about, you know, even the footage that comes from the body cams is equally disturbing. But you're right. I, I had the opportunity, Keisha, to meet Fane and Santana right after that shooting because um, an organization mm-hmm. I used to work with, we honored him. And I was in an article just not too long ago with the state where they actually tracked him. And he had a similar response to Darnella. His life is not the same. Um, after seeing that, but also being a part of the change that resulted in that officer, you know, being shown right. that he wasn't. And I remember truth. he asked for the and and I don't want to use and, and he asked for police protection. Like he got a lawyer to release the tape because yes. he was so fearful for his life because he knew the police were lying and was fearful that that he may end up dead for telling the truth and and. Bringing, bringing forth his video evidence of, of Slager lying. Oh, so awful. Oh, you know, just doing this podcast today at this time just gives me the chills here. But I know we're going to get towards, you know, what we need to do as policymakers to move forward. McKay, I want to bring you into the conversation because you and I are, you know, sisters at the hip when it comes to studying these technological trends. Emerging technologies have always been around and they've been repurposed, right, for these types of uses. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, when they're repurposed in the public interest and what we should be paying attention to in terms of these types of digital engagements that happen to help us either, as Keisha said, show the truth or demonstrate our ability and courageousness to tell, you know, to show it as well. Huh, that's interesting. Listen, it's really hard on the, I mean, just on the the, the eve of his George Floyd's murder to even think about broadening the conversation, but I think that's exactly what we need to do. Rashawn, I'll pick up on a point that he brought up in his comments around the individualized use of, you know, these technologies and how they play out in sort of like broader societal domains, so to speak. And, and, and sort of think about how when that video evidence is not, you know, used in ways that can bring about a, just, a justice outcome or, you know, is suppressed to say sort of Keisha's examples, then we have these sort of perpetuating cycles. But I want to sort of bring a different perspective, Nicole, to your uh, question that kind of broadens the conversation a bit to sort of think about these technologies is as a way that we can actually advance the public interest in a good way. I think it's good to sort of bring some examples in into the conversation to think about how we balance these discussions. So I'll just you know go out and say that these emergence, emerging technologies, machine learning, AI, everything that falls under that basket, is sort of like a basket of mixed goodies. And some of the bad we've already covered here in, in the last few minutes, the vast majority of these technologies should be, should be packaged with uh, caution labels, right? But some of them, some of these tech applications come with upsides, I think offer some promising potentials for, for social, advancing social good. And so 
I, I want to kind of, again, take a systematic kind of approach as opposed to an individualized approach and think about how some promising applications in the financial intermediation market space where we've seen machine learning technologies been applied to some, some dimensions of critical social goals and expanding access to credit. We've seen, again, you know, studies that have come in and show that these kinds of technologies are able to discriminate less against minorities than traditional sort of face-to-face -face lenders, but, but they also sort of perpetuate uh, certain pricing dis uh, discrimination patterns. A again, hence the mixed bag of goodies I referenced earlier. But I, I think it's important, Nicole, to kind of abstract the conversation up a bit away from these unfortunate but disturbing examples and also away from these isolated potential promising examples and think about how we can uh, really think about what these technologies offer us. And that's an opportunity, I think, to use or control their usage and applications to create equitable outcomes, um, whether it is in a criminal justice domain or it's in the financial services domain, right? We've got research showing that it depends on the goals, right? What do we object, what objective uh, goals do we prioritize we think are important and how can we sort of take these technologies and apply them in a way that is, can create equitable outcomes? So again, in, in the banking domain, right, we've seen the use of adversarial models that, that can be used to minimize racial gaps between zip codes, between races and gender groups, produce, I think, fairer, better spaces and places for minorities to participate in our broader civic and you know, social spaces. And I think this sort of comes back to this idea of, of, of ability to sort of control accountability and transparency. And that sort of theme can be applied, applied broadly. But I mean, to your last question on, hey, what are we going to, are we going to see more of these uh, kinds of usage or digital engagement continue? Of course, whether it is the fact that visibility is unfiltered and therefore is causing these sort of knee-jerk uh, reactions and, uh, and having us to respond systematically, or, you know, we're seeing that, you know, there's efficiency gains, intense competition among states and businesses across a bunch, a host of domains that will continue to see us move into a place where we're using more of these emerging technologies again, to, I think, close gaps, improve delivery for citizen services, but also to, to sort of bring us to, I think, a fairer, more just place. That process is not one without friction. I love what you're talking about because I always tell people, like, there's always two sides of a coin when it comes to tech, right? One side can take you down this path and another side could take you to another path. And I think particularly for people of color where technology has been more so framed in a consumptive manner, what we're actually seeing, and Makeda, to your point, there are obviously opportunities where the technology can be used to empower and embolden communities. But there's something, Rashad, that I want to talk to you on this, because I think Makeda brought up a good point in terms of there's discrimination that happens um, within the model. And then there's discrimination that happens when we actually use the model, right? And so I keep going back to when I think about George Floyd, the January 6th insurrection, right? Where technology was used, where people were taking selfies and recording, you know, breaking into the Capitol and posting TikToks about, you know, putting their feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk, you know, and I'm not going to have this become a conversation on whether or not it happened or not, you know, but I do think that there was a different way of a surveillance and use of the technology that I think is worth talking about. Well, you know, I think, I mean, with the January 6th in insurrection, I mean, it was no doubt that domestic terrorists who oftentimes, many of whom had white supremacist ideologies, 
aim to use technology to further bolster their perceived claiming of, of the Capitol building and of the spaces that were there. And literally using the technology in a way to say, this is our birthright, and what are you going to do about it? And of course, we know afterwards that there has been some level of accountability. I mean, there have been many people who have been arrested. But I think the key point here is George Floyd, who had done nothing violent, ended up underneath the knee of a police officer for over nine minutes. And yet and still, hundreds of people stormed the U.S. Capitol, filming these things, posting them on social media. And what happened to them? Hardly nothing. Now, there was one person who was killed. And of course, there were some some, some law enforcement who were injured and, and ultimately killed as well. But overall, what we saw were law enforcement being complicit with them, taking photos with them, laughing with them, kiki and ha ha and doing all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting for us to think about the law enforcement lack of response. And all we have to do is think, if we change the skin tone of the people who were storming the Capitol, and instead of them being perceived as white, they're perceived as black, or they're perceived as Middle Eastern, all of a sudden, we would have seen a significantly different response in what was going on. And I think what it speaks to is the perception of who has the right to use technology in a way, even when they're engaging in criminal acts. And we know right now that there are members of Senate of the Senate in Congress who actually don't want an investigation of what happened. I think that's because many of them were complicit or at least agnostic about it before it occurred and knew that something was going to happen. But I think when we start thinking about citizen surveillance tools that are used and the different ways by which they're applied and perceived, and by simply oftentimes Black people having a mobile device and recording someone, that's instantly perceived as a threat. That's because it really doesn't have anything to do with a weapon or uh, the surveillance tool. It has to do with the way that Blackness becomes weaponized in society and the ways that when white people engage in similar acts, that they're simply not perceived as threats, even when they should be. And I think with technology, it speaks to, to the ways that they were boldened, emboldened to go into the Capitol building, to take pictures, to bring in the Confederate flag, to have a noose hanging up outside, to have an Auschwitz shirt on, to put their feet up on the Speaker of the House's desk and take pictures with them, thinking that nothing was going to happen to them. And you know what? For the most part, they've been right. I mean, I'm curious how much beyond just a slap on the wrist many of these individuals are going to get for what they participated on on January 6th. Wow. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about just the differences, Rayshawn, when it came to surveillance and, you know, the type of technology uses to look at Black Lives Matter activists, how careful, right, they had to be when they were going out and protesting because of the fear of the use of power to take that technology use and to use it against them. And Keisha, I mean, it, it, it's starting to feel real uncomfortable, right? Because to a certain extent, this use of, you know, this manipulation and exploitation of power uh, structures is very much what we see in the criminal justice system as well as in policing tactics. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, what you're thinking about this in terms of, you know, this, this sustained use of technology and whether or not we can get out of these power dynamics if we're going to make sure that people like Darnella Fazer and Faden Santana and others do not feel threatened 
in their courageousness. So I think Rayshawn just made a really important point about changing the skin tone and the law enforcement response. It was as if during the insurrection on January 6th, white people have been so protected by their skin color, they were not worried about being arrested, not worried about any consequences. So they filmed themselves and outed themselves. And the comparison to Black Lives Matter is so important because Black Lives Matter activists, marches, whatever the engagement with the public, they were surveyed. And I think this is the big difference between white communities and black communities is the black community has been surveyed since the start of the country. We think about slave patrols, their very purpose was to survey the enslaved population. And those tactics then continue. And police for a long time have have been trusted by the white community. The black community has not trusted police because of our experiences. And those experiences are being played out now on camera, but being over-policed. And these tactics really, unfortunately, sir, reflect law enforcement's view of Black people as being inherently criminal or bad, or they must be doing something wrong simply for going about their business. So to your question about the use of surveillance, yes, there are instances where they can contradict the police narrative and therefore bring justice to the family. But oftentimes, I think Black people are fearful of how laws can be used against them for using technology. Like this idea that you, like this narrative that is now on social media about you can't film the police, which is actually wrong. But technology in a good way is changing the conversation about how the police are viewed, but also questioning how the police treat Black people. And I think that is probably the one upside of technology right now, that the police will no longer be able to just simply lie because of surveillance, or sorry, because of use of cameras and other technology that demonstrates that they are actually worse than the criminals. Yeah. I mean, you know, in some cases, people who saw this for the first time, they were sort of like, right. what? We didn't know this happened. Right. But then, you know, people of color that I know, black people I know were like, this is expected. I mean, watching that trial was almost a numbing experience. Right. And watching the video played over and over again, it was traumatic. But yet it's a trauma that we've become used to. And Makeda, that that brings me to this question, because you and I study oftentimes that the bias is in the product. <laughs> Not necessarily right in this use. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, where things also go awry when the product itself may be designed in a way that starts out also discriminatory. I mean, is are we are we sort of contradicting ourselves here when it comes to <laughs> the design of the product being discriminatory and now we seeing that it actually can help address discrimination? Oh, that's a good that's a good point, Nicole. The counterintuitive here, I think, is something I like to sort of focus on, right? I, I think it's probably important to sort of ask a question, like, are states and other local administrative agencies using these technologies? What other domains, you know, is our states and these agencies are showing growing interest in um, adopting and, and deploying these kinds of uh, models? So a few sort of come to mind that kind of help to sort of drive us to some clear answers, right? Cybersecurity, another form of surveillance. We've seen recently the, the increase 
increase in ransomware attacks, taking down critical infrastructure entities. And so the flip side of that is <laughs> these sort of surveillance uh, technologies come in and they really sort of help us to keep our systems, you know, driving forward and, and, and working, using some of these techs to detect fraud, waste, and abuse, improving revenue streams, or closing sort of critical loopholes for tax non-compliers, and also just improving, you know, citizen services just broadly. And to some of the themes we've been covering in the last few minutes, right, seeing more states and state agencies using, you know, these, these concerning, I think, black box models, right, opaque models in policing and recidivism probability model applications. That's where, you know, a lot of risk emerges. I think, you know, when you combine these, the, the, the sort of harm to discriminatory surveillance with uh, narrow agency goals, whether they want to increase revenue streams or, you know, provide better service delivery on the back of budget deficits and lack of expert talent to really anticipate uh, real, what these potential uh, downside or discriminatory outcomes might be. That's where I think, you know, the risk emerges and to your point around how do we create what kinds of products should actually be deployed in the public service sector? It's it's hard to sort of come with a sort of clean answer, but we really need to sort of take a deep breath and really examine the potential, I think, you know, risks in each of these domains. What are the upsides? What are the downsides? We've seen too many of the downsides that impact particularly Black men, Black families, Black communities. So again, we, I think there are Upsides to these, these 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 models, upsides to sort of states getting involved. And I think, you know, there's a strong, robust business case for states continuing to dabble and invest in uh, these uh, kinds of emerging tech. But all of this sort of coming together, Nicole, I think it can create a perfect storm for more risk and more, more risk borne out on the backs of uh, black and brown communities. So... I really think that, you know, we need to have a much more serious conversation and sort of tease apart where and how and who, who are the decision makers, how are these models being deployed, and what does accountability and transparency look like when ultimately state agencies may almost have no recourse in some, in some domains to the citizens that they're supposed to be accountable to. Yeah, you know, that that is such a great point, right? If you all remember, you remember when body cams were being instituted by a variety of localities, and I just recall a lot of places, and Rayshawn and Keisha, I know you remember this, who were telling their police officers to shut them off. <laughs> and then I recall, you know, a lot of places or police officers that were telling local citizens to shut off their cameras. I mean, are we going to find ourselves in that state? Before I ask Rayshawn and Keisha about the uh, George Floyd Policing Act, but are we going to find ourselves in that state when it comes to the type of empowerment that we're trying to place into the hands of folks? I think the unfortunate reality is that being able to utilize our First Amendment rights is not equitable for all. And, and that, that's the unfortunate reality. And that is where we are, that one of the things that's so powerful about mobile technology, about smartphones, about social media, is people being able to circumvent traditional modes of communication. But we also know that that same surveillance can be used against them in the ways that we heard from Makeda and Keisha. And I think one of the big surveillance tools that law enforcement uses is geofencing, where they can literally track people's phones, use their geolocation, and literally fence them in and then put them in a space where they then try to charge them later. This has happened to Black Lives Matter protesters overwhelmingly. And what's interesting about that process is that when we actually look at the data, 
that overwhelmingly Black Lives Matter protests have been nonviolent. How much so? A large report showed about 93% to 94% of them had no violence attached to them at all. Now, of course, that 6 to 7% are things that we don't want to see. But you know where we actually see more violence? With right-wing protests, with protests where individuals are white nationalists or white supremacists. But those are the sort of things that we don't like to talk about often, but this is what surveillance can actually do when people can actually highlight their own truth. But simultaneously, these surveillance tools can be used as a way to track people like they did at University of North Carolina with, 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 the, with the Sam statue when, when people were trying to protest that. And what's fascinating there is that, that, of course, that is the same university and the same campus that just denied Nicole Hannah-Jones tenure after, of course, she's a Pulitzer Prize winner. She's a MacArthur Genius Fellow. She's the creator of the 1619 Project. And so oftentimes when we look at places that are being overly surveilled for marginalized people, we also see that that surveillance and that form of marginalization extends to other aspects of society. It simply doesn't stop with what is being filmed. And typically when we see a law enforcement officer do something like Derek Chauvin, they've probably done it before. Because if you sit up when people are watching you, when people are recording you, and you still sit on someone's neck, or if you're like officer, former officer Slager that Keisha talked about um, in South Carolina with Walter Scott, where you literally pull out your gun and shoot and aim a man who is running away from you because he is scared for his life. That level of emboldenedness suggests that people have done that before. And I think one thing we know from a lot of Black people that my research suggests is that when you ask Black people if, they, if they're okay with increased surveillance, they say, well, sure, because I'm already being surveilled. So does this mean that other people are going to finally have the camera pointed at them so we can see what they do? Conversely, when you ask white people, they talk about it as invasions of privacy. And I think it speaks to the, the complex ways that surveillance plays out in our society. Keisha, I want you to jump in and I want you to jump in from this standpoint because I'm sitting here listening to Rayshawn. And as we said earlier, we still don't have the full passage of the George Floyd Policing Act. So we already know we have these externalities, right, that we have to deal with. What do we do with this stuff? Should this have been included in the Policing Act in terms of these technological tools that are pretty much contributing to the same outputs and outcomes when it comes to, you know, higher arrest rates and death under the hands of police for Black yes. people? And we also have to, though, think about the legislative process. So Congress cannot fix policing because policing is a local issue. Congress, of course, can set broad national standards, address systematic racism, try to address bias and hold police accountable. But when we're really thinking about this use of technology being turned back on police, I think the big question we need to address in terms of legislation, and some states thankfully are doing this, is qualified immunity. So to Rayshon's point about Chauvin doing this before the death of George Floyd, we know he did it in, I believe it was in 2017, where he punch kicked a need an individual who was handcuffed and on the ground, causing the individual, Mr. Ferguson, Lamar Ferguson, broken teeth, trauma, bruising, and other things, other other harms to his body based on that on that incident. But there was no but there was no video evidence. So the police don't, of course, really punish Chauvin. And it wasn't until the camera caught him kneeling on George Floyd's 
back and showing such disdain for him as a human being that we were able to get actually to the trial. Because without the video evidence, we know, the Black community knows what is going on, but there's no evidence to counter what the police say. And so I wish the George Floyd Act, which is a first step, but it is just a step. And we really need to address qualified immunity, which I'm happy to go into more detail if you would like. You know, look, I would say that I would want you to go into more detail, but I know look, we're on a podcast. That's a whole nother conversation, you all. But I, I think what you said, though, that was so interesting and you all know me, I'm a sociologist and my mind is always running a mile faster than my mouth, believe it or not. Right. When you say this thing is we know because of the cameras, Chauvin's comfort in having a camera run while he had his knee on George Floyd's neck that he probably did it before. What's so interesting about that point is, and I want to go to you, Makeda, facial recognition technology rests upon data sets that familiarize themselves with black and brown people who have been disproportionately arrested uh, or placed into mugshot databases because of the high rate of suspicion that our communities are, you know, acting ill fate, ill on ill will, right, when it comes to crime. And so as a result of that, we have overrepresented data sets that often misidentify because the technology is not always accurate, faces of color as criminals. And that rests upon the same premise that we're talking about now because we feel that they've done it before. You see what I'm saying, Makeda? So when you think about these issues of criminal justice and policing, to what extent should we also be thinking about that same um, methodology and principle also going into the creation of algorithmic bias that we should be addressing as well? Yeah, no, I think you bring up a, a really important point about this increasing use of facial technologies as a practice. And that's a practice we, we need to pay attention to. We're already seeing, we've already seen two instances, one in New Jersey and another in Detroit, of Black men being arrested because of this probabilistic estimation that they might have been involved in some nefarious act, illegal activity. Turns out they were miles away from the actual event. But you know, it's more about the collateral consequences of, of what happens once once you're misidentified. I think, you know, it's one thing to sort of, you know, use the evidence or use the technology or video video surveillance to sort of say, hey, it's not me and refute that. But in the the distance between the event taking place and having it actually resolved, there's a lot of time, right, involved. And Keisha, and I know you've written about this, thinking about this, those collateral consequences. And in the meantime, the ramifications for employment, housing decisions, access to public assistance programs, not saying that these two men fit any of these uh, buckets here, but Nicole, the point is, should we be using or allowing these very nascent and, and early technologies to be, you know, having to be used in such areas where they're having consequential uh, effects on, you know, people, communities who we know to be long, long-term over-criminalized, over-policed, and over-targeted. Again, it goes back to this broader concern of accountability. Where do we, as the public, begin to legislate and, and, and begin to sort of parameterize the use of, of AI, machine learning, facial technology in our social and civic lives. I think, you know, we've seen some bills on the Hill not, not advance, you know, quickly enough, but beginning to sort of address these issues around, well, should, should we sort of say, halt, let's stop until we figure out whether, you know, this is a good use, a bad use, an intermediate use in the meantime? I think, you know, we really need to sort of ask sort of basic public policy questions when it comes to these technologies 
and kind of go back to our basics, our core, you know, fundamental principles and values on how do we design systems that police, that allocate resources, that help to ensure that they're equitable outcomes for, for communities. And technologies are just a tool. They're just part of that toolbox. I don't think we should continue to let these sort of sexy tools and sexy sort of mechanisms, uh, I'm sorry, terminologies drive how we decide to organize our society and, and how we decide to make sure that we take care of, of, of the groups that are vulnerable and uh, need you know, access to just basic civic rights. But Rayshawn, I just want to wrap up with you, right? Because I think the points that have been made so far is that we have now this two-sided coin one where the technology can be used in the public interest and the other where the technology historically can continue to be framed in its use to you know, reinforce power. What should be the federal solution going forward in, in the use of these technologies? And I want to end with you, my friend, on this. What would you tell Darnella Frazier and others who we still want to be courageous so we don't have these happen again like this? I think first, you know, research shows that people viewing these videos and being in neighborhoods that are over-policed, that it does impact people's health. Some of the work that I've done with Ali Sewell and Keon Gilbert and, and others shows that, that men's mental health suffers and women's physical health suffers from being in these communities. So people have to, have to engage in self-care and protect themselves. But we have to continue to, I think, use the tools that we have before us that we did not have before to highlight our truth and our plight. I think when it comes to policy, we can look at the disproportionate ways that technology is applied. So not only looking at on the law enforcement side, when and how law enforcement chooses to use their tools, but then to also put restrictions on private companies that can simply pay uh, law enforcement agencies to use their new technology, their new tools, and put it out into, into the ethos and out in the atmosphere and just start using it without having it regulated. So there are certain questions oftentimes that we need to help policymakers be able to use so that they can help to regulate what's going on. Has the public been informed with using this technology? Have you ensured that bias is removed from the technology? How will you ensure that people would not apply the technology in ways that are discriminatory? These are some of the questions that we need to ensure that we focus on, but also we need to ensure that, that Congress at the federal level pushes and forges legislation that allows people to equitably be able to use the technology to be able to highlight their truth, which is something that we know from highlighting videos to obviously thinking about social media ha has varied based on race and other demographics. And so I think what would we tell Darnella Frazier? Keep going? Yes, of course. I mean, I, I think we say that it's important for us to use technology in a way to highlight what's going on. And, and again, acknowledging the pain and the trauma that it causes. And I think this is really where, and, and I just, I just want to add that it's always fascinating how it, it is oftentimes the younger among us. It is the youth among us who have the courage to do oftentimes what older people don't. And I think that's because they imagine a society that's equitable. And I think what they imagine it can be, they can transform it into that. And I think they should hold on to that and continue to push policymakers and others to live up to what they envision American democracy should be. Yeah. You know, I, I could stay on with Keisha, Makeda, Rayshawn, 
And all of the Tech Tank listeners, you know what? I'm going to put a little note that we're going to continue this again because I think it is so important for us to keep talking about this issue. My friends, these are difficult problems. They actually incite us to have this type of discourse in a safe space and one that can be done from an academic perspective with some policy solutions. So as we see Congress debate recent legislation on the George Floyd Policing Act, I think it's also imperative for us to think about ways in which we too can be part of the solution, how we also can be a Darnella Frazier or Faden Santana going forward. I want to thank the three of you for actually joining me. I want to thank you for doing it in a way that we can honor the anniversary of George Floyd's uh, murder. And I want to thank you all for, in many respects, even though he's not with us, continuing to keep his life and legacy alive. This is the Tech Tank Podcast, where we take big bits of information and make them into palatable bites. And we take on very hard, complicated issues so that you can take them on as well. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in for the next episode. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.